But let's read this, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now with these simple words, but sometimes they're hard to understand. They're hard to see how they come about in our lives. And I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might see and understand, that you might make these words very much a part of our life now and today and, and always and forever, that we would know the truth of these words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite missionaries in the whole world is an older gentleman by the name of Wallace Pouncey. You've never met him. He's never been here. Uh, he's from Greenville, Alabama. And uh, Wallace prays and God listens. He has more stories of answered prayer than just about anyone I know. And Wallace, along with his wife, Barb, went to the South American jungles for years with New Tribes missions. And Wallace sent out a prayer letter this week. And in it, he tells the story of a Yaqui Indian named Ben. And, and he writes, uh, Ben and his wife were considered slaves by the Yaqui because this tribe has two classes, high class and low class, or slaves. It's just part of their culture. Slaves were treated very badly and could even suffer death due to this position that they were born into. They did all the dirty work that was expected of them from day to day, and it was a miserable existence for Ben and his wife. Back in 1980, I, Wallace, who's writing this, was part of a seven-member team to enter the jungle to make a friendly contact with a small band of Yaqui Indians. There were three missionaries and four Yaqui that were flown over from another Yaqui base. They'd been working with this Indian tribe since the 1960s, but they found a small group that sort of off by themselves that they had never made contact with. So some from the tribes they've been working with took some of them and some of the missionaries to go make contact with this small sort of wild group out in the jungle. He says the four Yaqui were Leo, George, Alex, and Ben. The first three were high class, and Ben was brought along to do their dirty work. When this was explained to me, I was taken uh, back somewhat, but it soon became evident to me once we entered the jungle that Ben was treated differently, not abused, but looked down upon. He gathered wood for the fire and water for cooking. I liked Ben right off, and although we couldn't communicate well at times, he was always friendly to me. After almost two weeks of searching for the wild band of Yaqui Indians, we located some of their camps and knew that probably the next day we would make contact with that group. One of the missionaries got injured, and he had to be airlifted out by helicopter, and another would replace him who also spoke their language. 
for the chopper to land, a bank need to be cleared, and Ben was told to go clear the bank. And for some reason, he balked and said no and refused to go. Time was getting short for the chopper to be able to land, and I remember encouraging him to just go and clear a few obstacles. A second time, he balked. And I have to confess, I lost my temper and yelled at him. Therefore, the bank was cleared, and the chopper landed, bringing in Bob, who could speak their language, and took out Alan, who needed medical attention. And boy, were those guys excited to have Bob come in, because he could speak their language. The following day, about 4 p.m., we found the wild group setting up their camp for the night. We could hear voices, and I only saw one man naked with his bow and arrows moving through the jungle. Our plan was to have the four Yaqui with us to run into their camp with a small bag of sugar. So the four Yaqui took off their clothes so they could identify with the wild group. As I remember it, we were all on our hands and knees in a line about to give the signal to move. Three of the Yaqui and two missionaries were in front of me, and, and Ben was the last. It was quite a time. I was shaking with either fear or excitement. I don't remember. But my main thought was that arrows would sure be flying and would we all walk away from this. I prayed and I asked God for protection and to forgive me of my wrongdoings. And I instantly remembered hollering at Ben the day before and that I did so in anger. And so I turned to Ben and whispered in Spanish, I'm sorry for speaking loudly to you. Please forgive me. Ben just smiled and said to shut up. I felt so relieved. Yes, we made contact, and yes, arrows flew. I have proof as one landed in my leg during the night when the wild yucky tried to kill us, but that's another story. What happened to Ben? Well, we received news uh, recently that he died a few weeks ago. He left his crippled wife and three grown children to care for her. The letter said that no one wanted to help dig Ben's grave. The reason being, he was still considered a slave, even in his old age. He was born a slave, and he lived as a slave, and he would die as a slave. And as he was dying of TB, he was asked, did he know Christ as his Savior? And he said, yes. The letter didn't say who dug his grave, but that's not important anyway. Today, he is a free man. Free because Christ set him free when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And I am so glad that on that muggy afternoon, those many years ago in the jungles of Bolivia, I turned around and asked for his forgiveness. That was the last time I saw Ben. I look forward to seeing him in heaven. The Yaqui were a hard group to present the gospel to. And I've heard some say they question if any really were saved. My assurance lies in Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And my assurance lies in Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For Ben, the culture he lived under all his life has passed away. And he could be the representative of the Yaqui tribe in heaven. 
Won't it be exciting when we get there and see for ourselves? Love to all, Wallace and Barb. I read that and I thought I needed that lesson on assurance and prayer. And there's usually no better place to learn it from than at the feet of old missionaries whose faith is far greater than my own. And I imagine that in the struggling church in Ephesus, probably was a lot like that. And they got a letter from John the Elder, the last living apostle. And so in today's passage, he's writing to them and to us about assurance and prayer. So let's learn from him. Today we're in chapter 5, starting at verse 13. And John starts by telling us that you may know, that you may know. That should be the first blank. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Up to now, we've mostly focused on what John has said about the three tests of genuine Christianity. A doctrinal test, what we believe about Jesus. A holiness test, how we respond in obedience to God's word. And a social test, how we love one another as Christians. And we've seen John focus mostly on the doctrinal and the social tests here in chapter 5. He's repeated several times the importance of each of us believing in Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel and believing about Christ in accordance with the scriptures. He's also emphasized the importance of loving one another as showing the reality of true faith in Jesus Christ. And John makes clear that the Christian, the one who is born of God, the one who is overcoming the world, is one who makes a specific doctrinal confession of the real Jesus and shows the reality of his trust in Jesus by his love to God and by his love to one another. And there is something that is especially affirmed in this passage that we've studied together in in 1 John chapter 5. Here John gives us a threefold testimony to who Jesus is. He's strengthening our faith in Christ. He points to Jesus' baptism, and he points to Jesus' death, and he points to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And he said, each of these things confirm the apostles' teaching about who Jesus is and what he has done, and therefore cause our faith to be stronger than in who Jesus is and in what he has done. So that brings us today to verse 13, 1 John 5. 13. And John has something to say to a generation that's being impacted by false teaching about Jesus. And since our generation is also being impacted by false teaching about Jesus, uh, I think it's safe to say that John has something to say to us. And as he closes this letter, we only have one more in 1 John. Don't worry, we'll go on and do 2 and 3 John. But as he closes his letter, I want you to see a couple things, a few things uh, he wants us to learn. And first, we get John's reminder of the purpose of this book. You see it right there in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is telling us the purpose of this book is the promotion of Christians' assurance of salvation. 
their assurance that they truly know God. You've probably heard a verse like this somewhere before. Where is it? It's in the Gospel of John. Turn with me there to John chapter 20, verse 31. Here John explains why he wrote the Gospel of John. Same author, different book. Listen to it, John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John is saying, I wrote this Gospel not simply in the interest of history, not simply in the interest of biography. I wrote this gospel with a gospel purpose in mind, a converting purpose in mind. It's my desire that having heard these things, you will believe in Jesus Christ. John writes so that people will believe. Listen again then to what he says in 1 John uh, 5, verse 13. Says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So now he's writing to people who already believe, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not writing First John so that you might believe. He's writing First John to those who already believe in the Son of God. And so why is he writing to them? That they may know that they have eternal life. John wants Christians to have a full assurance of their true and saving knowledge of God, a full assurance of their salvation. Obviously, John sees assurance as important, and so he writes this letter in order to strengthen our insurance. Why? Because though assurance is important, it's not automatic. It's something worth to cultivate, to grow. To strengthen. It's interesting, if you put the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John together, you're seeing John build progressively a four-part case. He wants us first to hear the truth, and so he writes the Gospel of John in some measure, 1 John. He wants us to believe the truth, so he argues in the Gospel of John and says, these things were written so that you'll believe. Then, of course, he gives you reasons why you ought to have believed in 1 John. So he wants you to hear the truth. He wants you to believe the truth. And then he wants you to live the truth. That's what 1 John's all about. That's what Frank prayed about earlier. This letter is so much about living out the truth. Not simply saying it. Not simply knowing about it. But actually living it. And then fourthly, he wants you to be assured of the truth. And so he's telling you here, I've written this to people who already believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wrote my gospel so that people would believe in Jesus. I'm writing this letter to people who already believe in Jesus that they may be assured of their salvation. Now, I don't know how many Christians I've talked to over the years This may be true for some of you uh, who have struggled uh, in some measure with this whole idea of assurance. You know, they question, am I really saved? I think it's one of the great testimonies of the reality of the Scriptures that it is the Word of God 
since so much of the Scripture is taken up with assuring Christians of their salvation. How could it be uh, for, if they were uninspired men 2,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago? How would they know that I was going to struggle with assurance of salvation? Well, they couldn't have known that. But God in His infinite wisdom knew that because He is the ultimate author of this Word. And he knows he's going to have uh, precious children who struggle with assurance. And so in his uh, word, he writes things that were meant for them, meant for us. But he has them written. He's planned them out before the foundation of the world. This is one of the great testimonies to the truthfulness of Scripture. It was written thousands of years ago and yet it deals with issues that we are facing and struggling with and questioning today and John wants us to see that assurance is vital to the stability of the Christian life and he wants to do what he can to encourage us to grow into a full assurance of our salvation so there's the first thing that's what John wants to promote here in the writing of this letter and as you've read First John, maybe you found it to be a tough book. It really forces some soul-searching, some self-examination. And John's saying, although we have to do that hard work of self-examination, my purpose is not to discourage you. My purpose is to encourage you. My purpose is not to raise doubts in your heart. My purpose is to confirm faith, to give you assurance in the Christian life. That's so important for us to remember. It ought to be a standing concern of us as brothers and sisters uh, in Christ in this church that we would be praying for one another to grow in assurance. We probably don't pray about that very much. But it seems to be from this letter that ought to be a regular prayer. Because a Christian who is assured of his or her salvation is a Christian who's more bold, more energetic, more active uh, in the service of the Lord. We ought to be praying this for one another. It's John's desire that we grow in assurance. That's the first thing. Now let's look at the second thing. You see it starting in verse 14. Verse 14, that if we ask. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Christian assurance of answered prayer is the topic of these verses. And John is going to talk about the impact of assurance in this area of prayer. As we pray in accordance with God's will, John says, as we pray with the assurance that we know God and that we are his children, should transform our practice of prayer. What does prayer do? This is hard. A lot of people have tried to answer this question over the years. What does prayer do? There are Christians today who say that prayer changes God's mind. The other Christians say, no, 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 no. Prayer changes things. It changes the way things are. And then there's some other Christians who say, no, no, no. Prayer changes you. Well, which is it? Does God's mind get changed by prayer? Do things get changed by prayer? Do we get changed by prayer? Well, in prayer, we don't change God's mind. That would be a frightening thought. If I could change God's mind, and then my individual, finite, sinful will 
could at any discrete point in this universe change the will of God? If you thought that my prayer could change the mind of God, you should never sleep again. That would be frightening. I mean, I've had some just flat-out unbiblical prayers. Lord, do something with her. Some of you have prayed that. I'm not going to tell you who the her is. There's probably been many hers. And they're not all sitting over there. She's away. She needs more prayer. Being away. Now, you don't want my prayer to change the mind of God. That, that would be frightening. And we do read in passages, and particularly in Exodus 32 and 33, the language of God changing his mind is used. And it's clear from the passage that Moses, in fact, is being brought into line with God's will. And God, in his mercy, is withdrawing a previously announced punishment. But the punishment itself is contingent upon Israel either being stubbornly unrepentant or willingly repentant. So it doesn't reflect a change of God's mind, but a change of Israel's posture towards God. And it's the same in in some other passages where that kind of language is used. Clearly, we don't change God's mind. But does prayer change things? Well, not technically. Technically, God changes things. He may use prayer in his purposes of God changing things. Well, then, does prayer simply change us? No. Some people would say all prayer does is bend us to God's will. That's true. We do learn God's will in prayer. Our hearts are conformed to say yes to the Lord in prayer. I mean, if we thought we could handle all this by ourselves, we probably would never pray. In some degree, uh, prayer is an admission that I can't handle everything by myself. That's not all that prayer does. In prayer, we don't change God's mind. We don't change things by ourselves, nor do we merely come in line with God's will. Oh, that's true. But in prayer, we become God's instruments to affect his will. And thus, God in his grace works out his plan with the use of our prayers. That's what happened to Daniel in Daniel 9. We'll be getting to Daniel at the beginning of next year. And I encourage you to go and read that. You remember Daniel had a prayer for the return of Israel from captivity. And it's the very prayer that God uses, not just to return Israel, but he uh, claims that when he brings Jesus into this world in Daniel 9. It's a great story. You should go read it. That's how God uses prayer. He uses our prayer as instruments to affect his will. And John is saying that one important place where assurance impacts us is in the practice of prayer. Our boldness in prayer will very much would be tied to our assurance of salvation. And John wants us to have confidence in prayer. If you're not assured that you're saved, if you're not assured that you really know God, you're not really convinced about this whole prayer thing to begin with. And he wants us to have confidence in prayer. But there's a flip side to that, too. He's saying, be very confident in prayer, 
But he's also saying, don't be presumptuous in prayer. Presumptuous is when you presume something upon God that, you know, of course he'll do that. I asked. After all, I'm the pastor. He's got to do it. Doesn't work that way. I know. But listen here. He, he doesn't want us to be presumptuous. He says this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him if we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. Now why do you have to put that little phrase in there? In accordance, according to his will. He's making it clear that we're not to be presumptuous in prayer. We're always to pray, thy will be done. It says if we ask anything according to his will. John wants us to be bold in prayer. He wants us to be assured in prayer. But he also wants us to pray in accordance with God's will. So then he says... Uh, And if we know that he hears us, verse 15, that he hears us. Listen to how he puts it. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request. Excuse me. We have the request that we've asked of him. John speaks almost as if it's past tense. If we've asked him, we have it. And he's talking to us here about Christian assurance that God will answer our prayers. John wants us to be totally confident that God will hear our prayers and even speaks of them as being answered as we ask them. We know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Have you ever had a prayer answered before you prayed it? A few nods. We once uh, were in financial difficulty and, and we were given a van. And uh, it was great. We really needed it. And so we had this van and, and sat down and said, uh, you know, we have to get it licensed and registered and a title transfer to our name and pay the property taxes and all that kind of stuff and figured it out. And it was like $480 or something like that. And we didn't have it. It was sitting on the front steps and the mailman came. And the mail was a check for $500 written like four days earlier. Now, when I was praying for that money, the the check had already been written and mailed. I didn't know that. But we have to be careful because that can also sound like something that some Christian friends might take and use as license. You know, well, Lord, we're going to speak it into being by faith. But notice what John says here. He says, as we ask according to his will. It's not just some statement that John is making us so that we can hedge our bets. You know, if God answers our prayers just like we prayed him, then he must have heard him. But if he doesn't answer our prayers just like we prayed him, well, you know, we hedged our bets because we said, just in case, I pray in accordance with your will. So that's kind of like my out. But that's not the attitude in which John says this at all. John wants us to be confident in prayer, but he doesn't want us to be presumptuous. He wants us to pray boldly, but always, how? According to his will. We're always to pray, thy will be done. Well, why? Well, first of all, uh, Jesus tells his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, how are we to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so Jesus says, when you pray, you always 
pray for God's will to be done. And adding that in our prayer is not just hedging our bets. It's doing what Jesus told us to do in prayer. And not only did Jesus tell us to do it, that's how Jesus prayed himself. If you remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, he prayed, Matthew 26, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then again in verse uh, 42 of uh, Matthew 26, he says, Your will be done. Jesus, by his own example, shows us that we're to always pray in accordance with God's will. And John had heard Jesus teach this, and he heard him pray this way. And so John says to these Christians, pray boldly. Be assured of God's answers to prayer, which are in accordance with his will. Pray confidently. Pray often. Pray boldly, always in accordance with his will. And John, in inspired scripture, says that's how we're to pray. And that's not just a Presbyterian hedging of bets and prayer. And it's not because we lack the faith of our charismatic friends. It's because God's word says, pray in accordance with God's will. And John is driving that point home. So now we know how to pray. And we know all of that is well and good. We're kind of forced to ask then why is it so hard? Then why is it so hard? You know, it's proper to say that prayer being the most perfect act of faith is the true measure of our faith. We have as much faith as we have prayer. And if we have real confidence in what God has said, if we have genuine conviction of his presence and his promises and of the unseen world, we won't hesitate to enter that world, to lay claim to those promises, to draw near to God, all of which we most perfectly do in prayer. And that's why so many uh, Christian writers and authorities over the centuries have held that the ultimate test of any Christian life is the amount of time that Christian gives to prayer. Of course, all this would be very discouraging to me for not for the fact that all those same Christian writers and authorities and early church fathers are so quick to acknowledge their own tragic failure to pray as they ought. Prayer is a practice every Christian regards as very important and a practice every Christian uh, finds virtually uh, to be painfully difficult. Most of us would agree if I asked you, is prayer important? Virtually everybody here would say, yes, it's very important. Bible talks about it a lot. Well, if it's really that important, then you do it a lot, right? And a lot of people would say, "Eh, not as much as I should. Because we don't want to say, I hardly pray at all. It's very easy to pay lip service to prayer, but it's an altogether different thing to pray, to really pray. Pray as a Christian knows that he or she ought. I read a a funny story uh, from uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy, who's a a retired senator a long time ago, remembers about President Eisenhower. He became president. He sent out a letter to the nation, and all the newspapers published it. They did that sort of thing back then. Asked him to spend the very first 4th of July of his administration in prayer for the nation. 
And on that day, Ike went fishing in the morning, golfing in the afternoon, and played bridge all evening. And so it is so often with us. We talk prayer much better than we actually pray. Indeed, it would be a matter of shame to almost all of us where it be made known to everyone else here today how much time we actually spend in prayer, how many times a day we actually pray, how faithfully we remember to pray for those things that should always be in our prayers uh, for God's people. How well and how accurate was uh, the great Scottish preacher Alexander White. Uh, He said, there's nothing in which we need to take so many lessons as in prayer. There's nothing of which we're so utterly ignorant when we first begin. There's nothing in which we're so helpless. And there's nothing else that we are so bad at all of our days. And no wonder. Prayer is pure faith. It's an act of faith. There's nothing of sight, nothing of the senses in it. Depends entirely upon our belief, our conviction that God is there, that he'll hear us, that he'll answer us just as he's promised. There's nothing physical or earthly to sustain us in this most spiritual of all works. <coughs> Every Christian knows how much, as a person of sight and sense, uh, that he str- or she struggles to live by faith. And in nothing is it required that we live by faith more than in the practice of prayer. Nothing else demands faith more than that. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. This is the means to every good end in any Christian's life. Martin Luther said of the reformation of the the whole church in the 16th century, prayer must do the deed. Well, that should be the same thing that can and, and must and should be said of every change that needs to be made, of every need that has to be met in your life. Prayer must do the deed. Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Charles Spurgeon, another great preacher, once said, the most important event in the history of Scotland was when John Knox went upstairs to pray. I'm only being true to the witness of Scripture when I tell you the most important event in your life is when you close the door and fall to your knees and really pray. Pray as John Knox prayed. He defined prayer simply as an earnest and familiar talking with God. In Scripture, prayer is an intensely uh, spiritual and personal thing. It's a communion between the heart and the Lord who knows the heart. It's a coming to the Holy Lord God Almighty. And consequently, prayer must involve yourself in those things, things that please God and are acceptable to Him. And then to be effective, prayer should be offered with, as uh, uh, the author of Psalm 24 says, uh, clean hands and a pure heart. 
Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Let nobody think he can live in rebellion against the Lord and yet come to him, ask and receive whatever he wants. No wise parent rewards disobedience in his children. And then, Scripture says there has to be a purity of motives. Uh, James reminds us bluntly, we often don't get what we ask for because our motives in asking are impure. When we ask God for his blessing so that we can gain in reputation... When we ask God for what we intend to enjoy sinfully. When we pray so that we'll be known as a praying person by other Christians. In each of these ways, we discredit our prayers with a God who sees right into our hearts. We're to pray. The scripture says over and over again, in Jesus' name or for Jesus' sake. What does it mean to pray for Jesus' sake? Well, if you consult your American Heritage Dictionary, as I did mine, you will find that sake means benefit or interest or cause. Are you praying to advance not your cause, but Christ's cause? That's what it means to pray for Jesus' sake. Are your prayers concerned with Christ's interests more than your own? Are you praying for Christ's benefit not only for your own. Is what you're truly asking for being asked in Jesus' name, which is another way of saying, are you asking for what Jesus would want done himself were he praying the prayer instead of you? Are you asking for what Jesus would want done himself were he praying the prayer instead of you? And that's why after this series on 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we're going to have a short series on prayer. A few years ago, we had a short series on prayer in the Old Testament. This one will be on prayer in the New Testament. And my goal in this is that you will determine to be, by God's grace, much, much more a man or woman of prayer when 2008 draws to a close than you were at its beginning. That you will be more a man or a woman of prayer at the end of this year than you were at the beginning of this year. And if you're not really sure that it's worth the effort, check with Wallace and Ben. You need to pray. Take a moment to do just that, and I'll close. Jesus said... Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, make that the content of our minds. Make that the desire of our hearts. Make that true in our lives, now and always, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.